You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And uh, my goodness, Herds, we are starting this this run of the show, this 2024 season with a bang. Is that a gun pun? Because we're covering That's a gun Mr. Pun. Burns and it goes bang. I don't know <laughs> if I'm qualified to explain what we're doing this week. I don't know that anybody is really qualified to explain this cultural landmark we're covering Who Shot Mr. Burns part one this week because there are two parts. One of only four two-part episodes in Simpsons history, I found out. Oh, really? This is the first one. Anyway, this was in 1995. This is a Who It when Mr. Burns decides to steal oil, destroy an old folks' home, and literally block out the sun. Well, I mean, listen, let's let's not go too hard on Mr. Burns here. The retirement <laughs> castle thing is an accident. <laughs> I mean, it's not what Smithers implies, but yeah, it's, it's true. As far as we know, definitely an accident. Definitely no revenge required from from old Abe Simpson. Well, yeah, it, it's a two-parter episode wherein our first episode is covering the those toils that the town of Springfield has been put through by Montgomery Burns. Am I getting that right? Yeah, Montgomery, uh, C. Montgomery Burns. And I should say this episode was written by uh, Oakley and Weinstein. It's part of the Oakley and Weinstein era, just so we can credit that properly. Uh-huh. But yes, it's it's all about how awful Mr. Burns is and is the beginning of his, I would say, his downturn. This episode really is the peak of his evil. Interesting. I guess the important thing to know if you're listening to this episode and, and wondering why are we covering The Simpsons, mm. it's that- Herds here is a big fan of The Simpsons. It's true. Whereas for me, I've watched maybe five episodes of The Simpsons in my lifetime and I could name none of them. Yeah, and I figured what better time to throw you into the world of The Simpsons than, you know, the beginning of 2024, the beginning of a new new age, uh, the beginning of the next five years of our existence. Yeah, it's nearly our fifth birthday. Why not do something weird? I thought it'd be fun. And also because you obviously have to now solve Food Shop Mr. Burns because this was a real cultural event, or at least they tried to make it a cultural event. Effectively, Matt Groening, as far as I understand it, walked into a boardroom and said, we need to have like a crazy, wacky event that people can call into and and can like solve like some kind of crazy, wacky I mystery. see. They did like a telethon type thing. Yeah, it was call 1-800-whatever in order to guess who the killer is, who the shooter is. And nobody got it right famously, or at least the first thousand entries they looked at Nobody got it right because that's how the contest worked. So they had to pick a thousand entries and then pick a winner out of those thousand entries. And so the winner was some poor old woman who supposedly called the wrong number. That's <laughs> so. It, it, this sounds this sounds yeah. like we're delving into urban legend at this point. But I figured that this you know now on the show would be your opportunity, Flex, to go back in time. However many thousands of years, yeah, I guess, to solve the yeah, mystery. This is all coming from me who doesn't know that much about the entire series. We we open on the the principal discovering a foul stench in the school halls. It's thought at first to be the uh, pet that one of the classes was keeping. Hamster. It's like a dead hamster, but it's yeah. actually oil, apparently. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yes. 
while they're burying it in like the boiler room, which seems a strange place to bury an animal anyway, mm-hmm. the groundskeeper bursts into an oil well. It ruptures through the school, and uh, all of a sudden, Springfield Elementary is the wealthiest school in the country it's, because uh, it being on their land means that the school gets all the oil, right? Well, that's the joke, right? That's the entire bit is that it's just a terrible time. This is a ridiculous plan that would never work. And so, of course, it doesn't. The school is deciding, you know, all these wonderful things you're going to spend money on, like chocolate microscopes and a crystal bucket. It's ridiculous. I think my favorite joke is when Principal, is it Skinner? Principal Skinner yep, asks him. for more rubber stamps and yes. rubber stamps it. Yes, that is the, that is good, the closing joke. Because everybody else is asking for these ridiculous things that don't make any sense. And then he's like, yep, rubber stamps. That seems great. He's a very practical individual. And of course, Mr. Burns, who's looking out from his evil lair, you know, he learns that the school is becoming prosperous. And he says, you know, I, I can't have money going to education. Can't go to a non-for-profit. That's his, that's his problem. And so he plots to steal the oil. The other sort of B plot of the episode is that Homer, who works at Burns' plant, is trying to, you know, get recognition because he discovers early on in the episode due to a blunder that Burns doesn't remember his name. That's an ongoing gag in the show, just to make that super clear. Ah. He doesn't remember Homer's there name. There you go. I didn't know that. No, this is, well, now you know. Now this I is know. a culmination of a series of bits where he just doesn't know who Homer is. Basically over a, a series of hijinks Homer becomes enraged, sneaks into his office, spray paints, I am Homer Simpson. Mm-hmm. And of course, Burns still doesn't manage to put two and two together. Should have written El Homer. But after all of all of this debacle and Burns putting the money from his new oil well into a large disc in a nearby mountaintop to block out the sun, Mr. Burns is is shot. And and who could have done it is the question that we all have. I think one of the things that I, I, I liked about this episode is that even if you aren't familiar with a lot of the jokes, it still feels like they clearly wanted this, as you were saying earlier, to be that sort of groundswell moment where anyone could dive in and try solve the puzzle. Like, I didn't need to know that the Homer Simpson's name being forgotten thing was an ongoing gag because they sort of, like, did a bit of a reset Well, on that's it. the thing. Like, the, the whole point of this episode is to remind you of all of these reasons why everyone hates Mr. Burns, obviously. But, like, they also have to set up the characters convincingly in order for them to sort of be considered. Skin is kind of an interesting one to me because they go to the trouble of showing you his full name for clue reasons, of course. On a, on a very small plaque in one shot where it doesn't reappear in the following identical shot. As we Simpsons nerds know, this episode was constructed with freeze frame technology in mind. Ah. It's taken straight from the, wiki, the Simpsons wiki. So you are expected to be able to go back and, and pause the, the video and, and see what's going on. So the showrunners are trying to, and the animators, the director, they're all, they're trying to show you the pieces of these characters' stories that matter to the moment. Like the fact that Mo owns a bar that can then be blown up or whatever happens to it. And that Barney is a drunk and that Homer is, nobody knows his name is, you know, all these little things and how to read a clock properly. Yeah. I think, I think (laughs) one of the interesting things about the episode for me coming in new is that there's a lot of stuff where they've very clearly selected particular characters to go through with this puzzle. And this is something I'll talk about in the back half of the show. This episode has a very tiny selection of people who appear. Like if you didn't know who Ned Flanders was, his one appearance saying that's the loudest profanity I've ever heard, which I think (laughs) is all he says aside from, I want to hear from the sideshow Mel. Like 
it wouldn't mean much to you. So it's kind of curious that they chose the selection of characters that they did. There are lots of characters who like do not appear consistently in the episode. They appear in the opening or they appear in the ending or they're shown stroking their gun, but very few characters are there consistently all the way through. Yeah, and I enjoyed it in that it's a it's a pretty pacey episode. A lot of stuff happens. Yeah. Obviously I mean, with Simpsons, you know but... the large <laughs> ensemble cast in a short runtime, you sort of do have to structure the show that way. Yeah. But I don't know. It, it's just so interesting, like not really growing up on this style or era of cartoon and going back and watching it now. And it's just like such a different pace and feel to the sort of thing that I like associate with comedy, let alone animated comedy. And I don't know. It's like it's it's charming, but I feel like it's a it's a taste that has definitely flown me by. Well, I mean, I, I mentioned this when we were watching because we watched it together because, of course, we did. It was lovely. But it was very the cute. the other thing is, of course, that the Simpsons humor is so prolific and so influential that you kind of know where a lot of the jokes are going, even if you haven't actually seen The Simpsons. Like the idea of the the dysfunctional family is so it's everywhere now. Yeah, like I I, I enjoyed the episode, but I wasn't particularly excited by it. But at the same time, that's a lot of the ways that I would describe Agatha Christie. It's just like, well, this is all a bit derivative feeling, even though that would involve time travel. Yeah, it's very, it's very familiar. And I guess, I guess what we're saying is that The Simpsons is that animated comedy of of Agatha Christie's. It's what we're saying. I suppose, Herds, we should uh, wrap this part of the discussion here, and we we'll come back. And I have to pose two solutions. Yeah. You said I you want wanted? you to pose a theory for at least one character who is like part of the Simpsons family. And for one character who is not part of the Simpsons family. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing season six, episode 25 of The Simpsons. Who Shot Mr. Burns, part one. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. We'll be back with more in just a second. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are once again diving into interactive mysteries. And this time, as we talk about The Simpsons' attempt at the form, we wanted to take a look at a flourishing scene in China with Jubensha, also known as Script Murder Games. This roleplay heavy take on the murder mystery dinner party has stormed to prominence over the past few years. To talk with us on the subject, we're joined by Quinton Smith or Quinns of independent games journalism outlet People Make Games. Quinns, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome to Death of the Reader. I am thrilled to be here. I am bad at murders, but I'm excited about learning new ways that humans come up to uh, do them and solve them. Yes. So before we start, I want to talk about how wild it's been over the years, slowly realizing that many of my friends' favorite anecdotes about interactive hobbies can all be traced to you, Quinns, with the likes of <laughs> pathologic, blazeball, shut up and sit down and so on, all shaping the way my friends play games together. Why does the weird side of interactivity speak to you so much? Uh, because I get bored really easily. Um, I, I, my, not trying to take this to the darkest possible place straight away, but um, my childhood was quite lonely. And so I got really into games and, and sort of like fantasy and that was my safe space. And then like a kind of addict chasing a high, I just needed to find weirder and weirder stuff that I hadn't seen before. And then it turns out when you do that, you can turn it into a career of just getting really excited about, ooh, here's a cool, you know, Lithuanian company doing something. And then you talk <laughs> about it and people on the internet apparently like watching me do that. Uh, and so it's given me a career, which I feel very, very grateful for. So 
we, we have had literally decades of murder mystery dinner parties, which aren't quite as exciting as Lithuanian gaming development. Uh, but these, <laughs> these parties, they seem on the surface similar to Jibensha. But what sets Jibensha apart from other iterations of the style? Oh, goodness gracious. Well, basically, um, murder mystery dinner parties, I, I, you two would know better than I would, but in like the West, in America, in Europe, probably in Australia, murder mystery dinner parties aren't considered like the height of game design, right? Is that fair to say? I Very much so. Very much so. Reluctantly. One, you can sum it up in... <laughs> One blunt A4 page of that the person reading it has never seen before they start reading the words, stumble eight times through the script, and eventually we get there. Right, great. Um, so what Jubansha is, is essentially, um, and what attracts me to the story is how little we know about what is in China now, just an absolute sensation. So a quote I heard while researching the story was that um, two generations ago, the Chinese sort of hobby of choice was karaoke. And today, for China's Gen Z, it's Jubensha. So there's somewhere in the region of probably 35,000 what are called Jubensha stores right now, which you can sort of think of like you and your buddies going to do an escape room, except where an escape room is, you go into a room and then face away from each other to solve all these puzzles on the walls. In Jubensha, you arrive and read for, I'm not kidding, sometimes over an hour and after reading for about an hour, you then spend another six hours unpicking this, um, this plot Kind of like if you imagine for your for your listeners a you know like a murder mystery novel, but that novel has been sliced up and a chunk of it has been given to six or seven people, and then you have the opportunity to play out the novel over hours and hours and hours. I guess one of the things that's really weird about that is if I told my friends they had to show up to read a notebook for an hour before we played a six-hour game, they'd probably just not show up. Are there ways you saw game designers improving the accessibility without sort of compromising on that depth? Yeah, it's actually really straightforward because you just, the first time you do Jubensha, you do a really short bit of reading. You read for like 10, 15 minutes, which is not really that much more than, you know, your sheet of A4 paper mm -hmm. in, a, in an Australian murder um, mystery dinner party. <laughs> and then after doing 15 minutes, you will have so much fun that you will come back and be like, I want to do a heavier one. And then it just gradually you sort of sink into this like murderous bathwater until the water's actually fine. Well, Jabensha also has, has like a wide variety of, of subgenres to choose from, from medical dramas to slice of life stories to quite patriotic retellings of historical events. Um, they all seem to stir powerful feelings, but how exactly has such a wide variety of, of topics and scenarios been developed in this space? Yeah, so it's just because Jubench has been going for a few years now and people have started to explore. And turns out when you have tens of thousands of shops in China all competing for business, um, mm -hmm. there immediately springs up a equally large publishing industry of people trying to do the next big thing. I uh, I don't know why this example in particular comes to mind, but I really loved hearing about um, one of the Jubensha I was told about, which was a murder in a market and all the players run stalls. So maybe you sell flowers and I sell meat and someone else sells vegetables. But while we did have to solve a murder based on what our characters saw, the real winner of the game was whichever of us was the richest at the end of the investigation. <laughs> so, so, so players have all this monopoly money or like presumably they're like, okay, I will tell you what I know, but I do want to swap my stands location with yours because you've got that corner spot that I want. It's amazing. I mean, it's so interesting too, because like that exact game setup is sort of what I tend to see in Australian murder mysteries, but it's missing that like live action role play element, which is so typically yes. a much more niche hobby in the West. What do you think the key ingredient that made that LARP element of Jubentia surge in mainstream popularity in China? 
Oh, gosh. Yeah, this is the other thing about Jubancha that's worth talking about, is that I assumed, you know, these were really just puzzles about solving a murder. Actually, the scene might have started that way, but over the years, players have gotten more and more into um, the role-playing element and experiencing a feeling. And lots of the people I spoke about said that if you get really into Jubancha, the murder often becomes less and less important. And the role you get to inhabit and the feelings you get to feel become more and more important, you know? Like, I was excitedly told by the owner of a Jubancha shop about a game which is about a very wealthy family where one of the player characters has a terminal disease that cannot be healed through any amount of money. Um, and it's about, as a, as a family, coming to terms with that. And then, sure enough, the person told me, you you end up crying. It's awesome. And, like, mm. so I think, and I, but I do think you've, you've highlighted something super peculiar, which is like, it's very difficult to imagine the West, you know, like Australia's Gen Z decided to spend their Friday night going and crying together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, and I, I, you know, honestly, we start to bump up against the limits of my ability to explain exactly why that is. But <laughs> I don't know how China got to that point. And I don't know if it's necessarily a cultural thing. But I do think that the first Jubencher games taught them how fun this could be. And because mm. it's such a craze, They've just leaned into it harder and harder and harder. Now, I, I have to ask, Shibensha is a genre that requires a level of, of personal investment that is unique even among these role-playing games. Uh, what challenges exist in the creation of standardized safety tools? Oh, okay. Yeah. So one of the curious things about China is that with tabletop role-playing games in the West, we there's been more and more examination of safety tools. And this comes out of the... Um, the basically repeated horror stories of GMs introducing, say, sexual assault into a plot line or, or you know, like uh, children getting injured or something, which the people you're playing with, if they have something like that in their past, suddenly the game turns from being a fun exercise to something that is just miserable for them and they can't walk away because that's part of the social contract of role-playing games. And I think a lot of people are excited to bring more English language venture to your country and mine, and that's incredibly exciting. But one of the things we have to work out is that in China, Jubencher have no safety tools. They have no content warnings, and they have a large... Well, I would say they have an equal amount of sexual assault themes in them as the true crime and crime genre it, it sort of books that we have in the West have today. You ended your investigation, your video, with a call to action... For, for your audience to ignite interest in gaming markets outside of China for the thrill of Jubencha. I want to know, what future do you hope to see the genre have in the global West? You've asked that question in such a beautiful way. And Benjamin, I just want to play these games. They're like, <laughs> you're like you know, what, what wonderful future will you see? It's like, I don't know, one where I can go down the street and go into a Jubencha shop and uh, pick one of a hundred games. The thing, the, the picture I want to paint in your listeners' sort of let's imagination go. is ready. that when you go to Jubencha shops in China, you walk into these like glossy, clean bar-looking places and behind the bar are literally 100, 150 huge, beautiful box games. We're not talking about like, go to an escape room and choose one of two rooms. I'm talking go to this room, talk about what themes you want, what genre you want. Do you want a romance? Do you want a horror? Do you want a mystery? Do you want something that plays more like a game show or a board game? And then they will help you subdivide that based on like, oh, and what level of experience do you have? They pick out the perfect game for you. That's what I want. I want that on my street in my city. Yeah, screw mixing cocktails. Give me, give me mixing boxes of Jubencha. Yeah, but the the culture of Jubencha, if you get really into it, is more like you have a WhatsApp group with your friends and you go, "Hey, that venue on the south side of town just got that new game from that new author we like. Let's go this weekend." Anyway, Quins, thank you so much for joining us on Death of the Reader. This has been such a treat, and it was so awesome as we were getting into interactive mysteries 
seeing this report of yours pop up and going, I know the guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for watching. Uh, I really, really appreciate it, you two. This has been a blast. If you are unfamiliar with Quinn's work with People Make Games, Shut Up and Sit Down, or his new tabletop roleplay channel, Quinn's Quest, which he's so allergic to self-promotion, he didn't even mention it to us until after the interview, despite the perfect opportunity, we will have links up on the podcast and you should absolutely go make yourself familiar. Quinn's work is amazing and he has quite the cast of co-conspirators. We're going to jump back over to Who Shot Mr. Burns. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour on 2SER 107.3. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Who Shot Mr. Burns? That's up for me to decide on your murder mystery world tour as we discuss season six, episode 25 of The Simpsons. And uh, Hertz. Mm. What is it, Flex? I have to pick (laughs) a member of The Simpsons family and a member of the rest of the cast for my theory on this particular episode. I'm so interested in the way that they ran this particular competition because Mm. to my mind, admittedly, you know, being someone who reads murder mysteries week in, week out, I am shocked that of the people that were in that first batch of the competition that was assessed for the prize. The only batch that that mattered, but yes. That that <laughs> nobody got it. That's crazy well, to me. I wonder how many people just kind of ended the episode and then immediately called in. Well, I guess if it, if it was the first thousand, right, then that kind of would have been the only way to get in. The contest ran for a couple of months. It ran from the airing of this episode till the beginning of the next. Because that's bizarre to me. There aren't even a thousand characters in the show. So no. on like a pure game of chance, surely someone got it right. That's so here's, bizarre. Here's the thing. Again... It's a little bit of urban legend, but according to multiple sources that I've found online, multiple written articles. So basically- Basically gospel. There was somebody on a forum online who picked the correct character and figured out what was going on. The writers always meant to find that person, but they could never find them and like send them the the actual prize. And the prize, to be, to be clear, is- to be animated in an episode of The Simpsons. Yeah, as I was saying in the previous part of the show, uh, I think one of the interesting things is how thin the cast is. Like, if we if we look at the, the characters that really got a speaking role in the episode, we are down to The Simpsons family, Principal Skinner, Superintendent Chalmers, the groundskeeper Willie, Smithers, which is Burns' assistant, Moe the barkeeper, and, like, the, that's not the only speaking roles I know. There's who who have who have I missed? There are a couple of characters, and it's mostly based off of the sundial clue. One of the characters who only shows up at the end of the episode but does have a speaking role is Sideshow Mel. Yeah, I, that's that's too late. That's too late. <laughs> and Santa's little helper, who is also known as the Simpson Mutt. Wait, wait, no, I I said I said the Simpsons. I wasn't oh, discounting you? them. You didn't discount the dog. Oh, fair enough. I didn't know that they were called Santa's little helper. <laughs> How did you not know that? He's called that in the first episode of the show ever written. So let's start to go down the way that I broke down this episode. Let's annihilate some suspects. To my mind, anyone who threatened Burns directly in the episode Audibly. was was immediately out. So that discounted Simpsons, that discounted <laughs> the groundskeeper, that discounted Mo. Mostly wrote out everyone wielding a gun in the town hall scene where the mayor says that people mm. are seen to be stroking guns. Yes. <laughs> I have, it's been brought to my attention that some of you are seen to be stroking gu- guns, so I will yield the floor. Yeah. 
Oh my god. Good, good bit. It's good a bit. great bit. But I love how, that. How bit. do we how do we whittle down the rest of the cast is the question. The weapons that the characters are using. I've always liked that clue. The fact that he's audibly shot, which means that Skinner, who is apparently wielding a, a silenced pistol burns when he collapses on top of the sundial at the end his own gun is missing oh interesting which means that he was probably shot with his own which means that it can't be anyone that we saw with a gun so skinner is out <laughs> we also have in in the scene in the bar there's a as a brief flash that says a show airs at 3 p.m what's the show it's it's pardon my zinger which there's a really Yay. weird line in the town hall meeting where Smithers says he never misses that show. It sticks out like an it's absolute true. sore thumb. And I, I told Herds to pause the episode. He says it so quietly, though, doesn't he? But it's like it's edited in in a really weird way where it like obviously doesn't fit the flow of what else is going on. No, no, it's because it is, he's already said he's like, this is my early confession before I shoot Mr. Burns. And he goes to sit down and he kind of slips that line in. And so it's kind of half murmured. Yeah, because he's in like a drunken stupor because he feels betrayed by Burns because he thinks he's gone too far. Well, no, he he's fired. He's been fired from his job. But yes, he does feel betrayed as well. That is, in fact, he has been betrayed. But anyway, so he has to watch <laughs> that show at, and I quote, 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Which is, is when we know the sun is blotted out by Burns' machine because he announces it loudly to the to the town it's hall. It's such a good line. It might be my favorite is, line of the episode. Good. Certainly my favorite non-comedy line. Have you ever seen the sun set at 3 p.m.? I love it. It's so good. Anyhow. Uh, Anyhow. I, that, that, <laughs> that, leaves us, that leaves us with Bart. Yep, because he got his treehouse blown up. Was it Santa's little helper? Santa's little helper who got put in a wheelchair. Lisa, who had her jazz taken away. It's true. She lost her jazz. Marge, who is very frustrated with everyone yelling. <laughs> Not very convinced with Marge, are you? No. Yeah, we, I mean, to be fair, she calls Mr. Burns selfish when he threatens to block out the sun. Yeah. She says, maybe selfish. Yeah, so... At this point, I think I'm going to count that Lisa Simpson saying that Burns needs to get, you know, shown one up counts as threatening him. So she's out. That's the way I'm ruling her out, mm -hmm. which leaves us with Bart, Santa's little helper. And we're kind of out of people at this point. And that's it. That's it. So which which character is it? Bart or the dog? All right. So the last clue, which you foreshadowed earlier, Herds, uh -oh. is that there's a sundial that he 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 passes out on, which you you said was important. Mr. Burns, yes. Uh, his arms are pointing south and west on the sundial as he lies over the top of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I took this to be S and W, which was kind of my first lead over to, to, to Skinner, as in W. Seymour Skinner, which is the nameplate that we mentioned we saw in his office earlier. But. You could also read it upside down. Read it as 3 p.m. or 9 p.m. Which is the way that Burns is facing, which would be S and M. Mm, interesting. Now, this could be many things because there are, I'd say most of the cast are named with S's, M's, and W's by my, <laughs> by my count. As far as we know, yeah. But from our, from our final count that gets rid of Bart is, is the way that I whittle it down. So we are now left with only two suspects by my current cutdown. That is... The dog. Simpsons Mutt, yep. Simpsons mm -hmm. Mutt? Oh, yes. <laughs> That's what Abe calls him earlier in the episode. Yes. But yes. And we are left with, and I haven't mentioned it to this so point. So the dog. It's Maggie the dog Simpson. Shoot. Oh. Oh. Well, I'm, what? The baby. That doesn't make any sense. The baby. 
That doesn't make any sense. How could a baby shoot a man? Because, of course, Ben, the most important clue and the thing that you tried to steal from me by getting me to watch the episode in 16 <laughs> by 9... Ah, yes. ...is that when Classic Mr. Burns trip. says, who here has the guts to stop me, Maggie is the only person that doesn't look away. That seems pretty, but seems pretty good. Seems pretty good. So your theory is, for the Simpsons member... I assume this is the fake theory and you'll introduce your real one with a non-Simpsons member, but... You're going with Maggie Simpson yep. using Burns' own weapon. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Yes. The contest was to just pick who the culprit is, but we have a slightly more sophisticated system. I would love for you to tell me not just the who, but the how and the why. I would like you to be as specific as you can. Well, the, the line that Burns gives is he says, what do you look so happy about? Now, my, my theory is we saw Maggie being put into the car by Marge. So my theory is that Maggie crawled on over to Mr. Burns. He went to pick her up. You know, don't leave an infant crawling around on the street after dark, especially not at 3 p.m. So he's a very kind-hearted soul. He would definitely look out for the baby's safety. We do see Maggie startled by what happens when the oil splashes from the Slant Drilling Co. down into the backyard. I don't think I have terribly much more to go off other than that it's kind of <laughs> the main appearance that maggie has in the episode aside from the town hall meeting so i'm just gonna i'm gonna leave it at that okay fair enough fair enough what's your non-simpson my non-simpsons family theory i think based on all of the elimination that i did earlier i am going to rescind my elimination on skinner <laughs> yep he's been uneliminated he's back he's uneliminated purely <laughs> because his gun, yep okay his gun has a suppressor on it which uh-huh. means that maybe we only heard one of two shots that went uh, off and they had a duel in the street. That makes sense. There were two shots. That makes sense to me. I like these theories. Obviously, the the why is because he, he took the oil anyway. That's fair enough. That makes sense to me. I Look, I'm very impressed with your detective work. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to sit down and, and watch, watch the show and see your reactions. I really love this, this little mystery. I will have to go away and think about your points forgetting most of them but uh we will we will we will think about things we'll, we'll come back with more who shot mr burns sounds good you're listening to death of the reader your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3 we'll catch you with more who shot mr burns next week on the show part two thanks for joining us here this evening catch you around